lecture twelve part one of the groundwork of the christian virtues by william bernard ullathorne this librivox recording is in the public domain lecture twelve the world without humility part one when they knew god they have not glorified him as god nor given thanks but became vain in their thoughts and their foolish heart was darkened romans chapter one verse twenty four the light of reason is sufficient to teach the knowledge of god but not to bring man into union with his creator for the light naturally implanted in the human mind bears witness to god and the conscience is his voice all his works speak of their creator and in the action of his providence he manifests his care of them but the pride that is in man separates him from god turns his soul from the light corrupts his interior sense and smites him with spiritual blindness when that pride has gone so far as to isolate man from god and his self-love has deluded him into the absurd notion of self-sufficiency his understanding is drawn from the light that makes god known and retreating behind the fictions of his imagination he proceeds to deify himself as it is the natural effect of pride to swell the imagination and obscure the understanding the effect of this again is to fancy that the more independent a man is of superior truth and authority the more liberty he gains but to have less of truth is to have more of darkness and darkness is the loss both of liberty and power those men of progress backwards who seek light from the things beneath and not from the things above them cannot understand what the incarnate truth has taught us that if therefore the sun shall make you free then you shall be truly free st john chapter eight verse thirty six in the scriptures and the church we learn that the true progress of man is towards god and that the path of this progress is upwards to greater truth and higher justice but the heathen world teaches us the terrible lesson of the final end of false progress of progress away from god through the dreary downward path by the ways of negation and false liberty first the sense of dependence on god is lost and so the virtue of humility departs then man forgets his creator forgets him until he no longer knows that he is a creature and so the intellectual principle of humility disappears from his mind pride then remains master of his heart without a rival but still wanting a god though a god consistent with his license he begins to deify the creature next the keener intellects begin to theorize and philosophize apart from god working their proud intellects under the influence of their proud imagination and confounding the light of those eternal principles that gleam in their obscured reason with the phenomena reflected to their mind from the visible creation 
but as the loss of humility is the loss of that god-given light which makes the distinction clear between what is of god and what is of nature in the mind they confound god and nature in one and transfer this confusion to the universe they thus find a miserable self-flattery in bringing down god to the level of the soul and in raising the soul to a level with god making the material world a changeable garment of illusion to both pantheism is the levelling system carried into the sphere of divinity there is but one descent lower into which the debasing tendency of intellectual pride can fall and this is the terrible revenge that the mind takes of its own deification when both mind and life are turned into the material results of a material cause this is the work of minds so steeped in animal sense and matter that they can no longer see spirit or understand its nature very pitiful it is that when these results of the defects of mental vision are put into many words they should be mistaken for science although nothing but a cloak for ignorance and want of light st paul describes the mental condition of the heathens whom he knew so well in these words the nations walking in the vanity of their minds having their understandings darkened being alienated from the life of god through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their hearts who in their callousness gave themselves to luxuriant lasciviousness to every work of uncleanness with greediness ephesians chapter four verses seventeen through nineteen this sensuous and unclean life thickened the darkness of their minds and intensified their egotism immeasurably winding their heart with an ever-increasing pride thus separated from god by their pride with their minds turned from the truth and cut off from the source of light these proudly imaginative men like children in the dark were subject to many fancies and illusions which became their punishment they made gods for themselves whom they projected from their imagination and whom they filled with their own life and character for these gods of human make of necessity partook of human qualities with such exaggerations as the poetry of the obscured mind could furnish as the sun sheds light from the heavens and fertilizes the earth and is the brightest and most imposing of visible things the man in search of the god he had lost transferred his life and intelligence to that luminary and made it his god as the moon predominates in the night and mitigates the darkness he made the moon his goddess under many names for as he draws his types of life and action from human nature he naturally imagines gods of both sexes the stars become to him as minor gods and the clouds as ministering spirits carnalized as he is by the predominance of sense and imagination over intelligence the man has lost the power of penetrating beyond the material into the spiritual heavens and of realizing to his mind and heart the purely spiritual and perfect nature of god 
for his pride and sensuality combine to blind his intelligence but as pride grows with habit with time and through the constant interchange of minds divorced from god and as the reaction of sensual elation upon mental elation increases in proportion the imagination becomes more gross though not less vivid and upon this like fanciful children who reflect their own vivacious life into whatever interests them whether a rocking-horse or a doll these lost children of a larger growth began to imagine life and divinity in woods and mountains in caves and streams in gardens and springs and wherever they found indications of power beauty or beneficence and as fear begets the imagination of power victories and panics fevers and their cures whatever things in short affect humanity strongly were ascribed to special gods until at last almost everything from the visible heavens to the household hearth had its peculiar divinity each with its special character and many limitations behind all the chief features of nature and in all that was useful to man the heathens imagined the presence of deities requiring to be honoured or feared until almost everything became the abode of some god and the god who made all things was alone forgotten what is this but an enormous corruption of the truth that the action of god is everywhere to the vague notion of a divinity that still hung in their minds the heathens put their own corrupt imaginations and fancied gods innumerable that were only the caricatures of themselves yet still was there left in them a sense of one great mysterious and universal power that filled their minds with awe and dread a power that ruled both gods and men and whose decrees were inevitable into which however they feared to search and to which they gave the name of fate undoubtedly this was a shadow upon their mind though lost to their understanding of the one eternal god almighty who rules all things but of whom because alienated from him they stood in fear and dread after imagining their gods the next step was to represent them externally this was first done in rude symbols or fetishes that seemed to localize their influence attempts were next made to represent them in human forms or in forms uniting the animal with man finally with the progress of skill they took the naked human figure with all its refinements and allurements as the fitting representation of those gods of human fashion forever as idolatry advanced the gods became nearer in likeness to human nature in its fallen state as we see them represented by the poets with not only the virtues but the vices of mankind but the vividness of the corrupt and pride inflated imagination stopped not here there is testimony in the pagan writers that their idols were assumed to be inhabited by the gods they represented even the sacred scriptures declare that they were not gods but demons and certainly where pride is so great as to put the figures of mortals in the place of god 
the demons cannot be far away many writers have dealt copiously upon the sensual vices of the heathen world and upon its innumerable superstitions but scarcely any one seems to have gone to the root of the evil which accounts for all the rest neither the writers on pagan morals nor the commentators on the classics take much notice if any of that terrible pride which not only separated the heathens from god and threw them in full reliance on their own self-sufficiency but so completely possessed and blinded them that they mistook that for the first power of their nature which was the first of their vices and the chief cause of all their moral weakness and superstition much care is taken and justly taken by every truly christian teacher to guard the minds of youth from the impurities of the classics but whoever thinks of cautioning them against the false foundation of their virtues st augustine who had such bitter remembrance of his own pagan youth and was so intimate with the pagan philosophies never ceases to instruct his hearers and readers upon the radical difference between christian and pagan morals as based on the opposite foundations of humility and pride we will here give a cluster of his maxims that pervade his voluminous writings in many forms man loses god by pride he regains god through humility of which christ is the author a proud soul is the greatest of miseries but a humble god is the greatest of mercies the law of christian life and almost the whole of its discipline is the virtue of humility in vain shall we look for this virtue in the writings of the philosophers or in the schools of error it is peculiar to the sacred scriptures and the church of christ in his great work on the city of god to which he devoted so many years his whole object is to show that the pride of man explains the history of the action of god in the world and that but for his providential visitations in the shape of humiliations calamities and sufferings the uncurbed pride of man would have brought the human race to destruction he then shows how the humility of christ is changing the world of his time the heathen sages and heroes claimed the virtues their wise men disputed on them they had much to say on prudence justice fortitude and temperance and great examples of these virtues to allege yet they had nothing capable of standing by the virtues of the gospel or even of the old testament they knew absolutely nothing of their creation and as little of the principle of grace and were utterly ignorant of the virtue of humility at the root of their virtues lay the poison of pride and the admitted ground of them was the self-sufficiency of the man for whatever he chose to undertake it infected them all through and pervaded their philosophical expositions of them in a well-known passage of st augustine who had examined all their philosophies he says the confession of sin the humbling of the heart the saving life that subjects oneself to god that presumes in nothing on oneself 
that ascribes nothing to one's own power this is not to be found in any of their books who are alien from us not in the epicureans not in the stoics not in the manichaeans not in the platonists we find excellent moral precepts and rules of conduct in them but humility cannot be found humility comes from another direction it comes from christ this way is from him who was high and came in lowliness by this humility we approach to god who is nigh to the contrite of heart but in the deluge of many waters that lift themselves against god and teach proud impieties they cannot come nigh to god as cajetan observes one or two of the heathen sages caught a distant glimpse of the virtue for a moment and that was all plato had a passage in his laws in which he speaks of god as the avenger of those who fail from the divine law and of the coming happiness of the man who adheres to justice with a composed and modest mind and follows the conspicuous guidance of justice with constancy and that he deserts the man who is inflated with pride depriving him of force and success this solitary passage rises far above the habitual thinking of heathen philosophy even above plato himself at other times and seems to have found its way to the writer from a hebrew source the famous oracle of delphi know thyself makes little to the argument unless we know to what extent man was advised to know himself humility arises from the knowledge of god and of oneself and the true knowledge of oneself is only obtained in the light of god some few writers as we have observed in a previous lecture have attempted to identify the magnanimity taught by aristotle with christian humility but this will not stand even the briefest inquiry not to speak of the ethics being nothing more than an exposition of political morality we have only to examine the famous chapter on the magnanimous man to see that it is nothing more than the description of the shrewd self-seeking worldly ambitious man of all times who cultivates honour as the way to social success the very name of magnanimity says the philosopher implies that great things are its object whatever is great in each virtue would seem to belong to the great-minded this virtue then would seem to be the ornament of all the other virtues in that it makes them better and that it cannot be without them it is obvious that magnanimity is put forth as the supreme of pagan virtues brightening and perfecting all the others it holds the place that charity holds among the christian virtues but how does it accord with humility let us hear further he is thought to be great-minded who values himself highly and yet justly the man who esteems himself lowly but yet justly is modest but not great-minded he who values himself highly without just grounds is a vain man though the name must not be applied to every case of unduly high estimation he that values himself below his real worth 
is a small-minded man thus man is constituted the supreme judge of his own worth and is high or low-minded according to that judgment st paul says on the contrary be not high-minded but fear the great high-mindedness here described is not from humility but from pride as it comes out more clearly in what follows honour then and dishonour continues the master of heathen philosophy are specially the object of the great-minded man and as such honour as it is great and given by good men he will be moderately pleased as getting his own or perhaps somewhat less for no honour can be quite adequate to perfect virtue but still he will accept this because they have nothing greater to give him but such as is given him by ordinary people and on trifling grounds he will despise because this does not come up to his deserts and dishonour likewise because in his case there cannot be just ground for it then the philosopher tells us that honour is the cause of power and wealth being worthy of choice for certainly they who have them desire to be honoured through them it seems too that pieces of good fortune contribute to form this character of great-mindedness i mean the nobly born or men of influence or the wealthy are considered to be entitled to honour we see then that the chief heathen virtue begins and ends in the man its foundation is self-esteem its object human honour and its chief instruments what we should call the advantages of fortune it resolves itself into self-regard worldly success and the worship of honour received from honourable that is from successful men this was the heathen wisdom of which st paul says the world through wisdom knew not god and the wisdom of the world is folly with god tertullian cuts this wisdom to the quick when he called its votaries the animals of glory it was the proud self-seeking worldly wisdom philosophized into a virtue for the select few men of better fortune it could not have been preached to the multitude excepting in bitter irony on their lot in life the multitude were the ordinary and small-minded men incapable of magnanimity whose little tributes of honour were to be despised because they were unworthy the notice of the great-minded man that the circle of the favoured few formed the limits of this magnanimity is obvious from the terms in which the virtue is described and is more explicitly stated in what follows it is the characteristic of the great-minded continues the philosopher to ask favours not at all or very reluctantly but to do a service readily and to bear himself loftily towards the great or fortunate but towards the people of middle station affably because to be above the former is difficult and so a grand thing but to be above the latter is easy and to be high and mighty towards the former is not ignoble but to do it towards those of humbler station would be below him and vulgar compare this heathen wisdom with the teaching of the eternal wisdom whose first words when he opened his mouth to instruct were these 
blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven this pagan magnanimity is neither more nor less than the exaltation of pride the very reverse of christian magnanimity it rests on the sufficiency of man whilst the christian even when employing the sources of human influence rests his virtue on the sufficiency of god yet this chapter is entitled to careful study because it anatomizes the heart of the polished man of the world of all times whose first principle is himself and the breadth of whose life is the good opinion of his social circle that plato had heard something of the divine wisdom revealed to the hebrews is rendered probable by other passages than that we have quoted from his writings for example where he says that the triangle is the figure that nearest resembles the divinity and again the famous passage in the second alcibiades where he puts the declaration into the mouth of socrates that man knows not what to ask of god until the divine governor of man shall come to teach him the dialogue deserves to be quoted in proof of the utter darkness and perplexity of the wisest of all the heathens with respect to god and himself socrates do not you remember you told me you were in great perplexity for fear you should pray unawares for evil things whilst you only intended to ask for good alcibiades i remember it very well socrates socrates you see it is not at all safe for you to go and pray in the temple in the condition you are in lest the god hearing your blasphemies should reject your sacrifices and to punish you should give you what you would not have i am therefore of the mind that it is much better for you to be silent for i know you very well your pride i say will probably not permit you to use the prayer of the lacedaemonians therefore it is necessary you should wait for some person to teach you how you ought to behave yourself towards both gods and men alcibiades and when will that time come socrates and who is he that will instruct me with what pleasures shall i look upon him socrates he will do it who takes care of you but i think as we read in homer that minerva dissipated the mist that covered the eyes of diomed and hindered him from distinguishing the god from man so it is necessary that he should first scatter the darkness that covers your soul and afterwards give you those remedies that are necessary to put you into a condition for distinguishing good and evil for at present you know not how to make the difference between them alcibiades let him scatter them let him destroy this darkness of mine and whatever else he pleases i abandon myself to his conduct and am very ready to obey all his commands provided i may be made better by them socrates do not doubt of that for this governor i tell you of has a singular affection for you alcibiades i think i must defer my sacrifice to that time socrates you have reason it is more safe so to do than to run so great a risk in this singular passage 
written by the most soaring mind among the greeks and described to the wisest of them we see what was the condition of the most enlightened heathens after all their investigations they were ignorant of their final end and of the real good of the soul in consequence of that ignorance they knew not what it was safe to ask of their gods and confessed that the one god alone is the secure guide and teacher of man st clement of alexandria observes that plato's writings prepared the minds of the heathen for christianity but though st augustine owed his conversion from materialism to them he declares that their general spirit inspires the heart with pride the social system set forth by this divine man as he was called embraced the wildest schemes of modern communism absorbing the family in the state rejecting the marriage tie transferring the care of all children from the parents to the state and advocating the unnameable vices to their last extremes end of lecture twelve part one